You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah, and some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The oldest known recording of the country's oldest orchestra, the New York Philharmonic. I'm no outside observer when it comes to the Phil. I'm on the board. I think it's central to the life of this city. And I believe that today's guest has positioned it better than ever for the challenging years ahead. When Alan Gilbert took over as conductor and music director in 2009, he knew the line he had to walk. Be new enough to stay vital, traditional enough to stay solvent. A familiar Stravinsky tour de force, for example, tends to sell many more tickets than a piece by a living composer. Frequent concert-goers, after all, average 60 years old. Almost one-third say they'd go less often if programs included more contemporary music. If anyone could thread that needle, it was Gilbert. The son of two former New York Phil violinists, he'd literally grown up with the institution but his heart beats to newer, edgier music. That's Le Grand Macabre, Gilbert's first big project with the Phil. It was a hit, sold out the entire run, huge reviews. He showed it was possible. The Philharmonic can evolve and triumph, but some of his later modern programs met with smaller crowds and internal opposition. Last year, Gilbert announced he was phasing himself out of the job. Directing an ensemble as technically perfect as the Phil poses at least one unexpected challenge. In a way, I would almost say that it's to keep them from being too professional, to remember how, how it feels to share the experience of playing music together as if it were the first time. I remember the first time I played in an orchestra. It must have been dreadful. It was the Juilliard Pre-College Orchestra, and I was the last chair, second violinist. I just squeaked into the first orchestra in pre-college, and we were reading Brahms' Third Symphony for the first time, and it's one of the hardest pieces to play, and, and it had to have sounded you know, wretched, mm-hmm. this first reading. But I was so thrilled. It was so exciting to hear the entire group playing the same piece. And I thought it was probably the greatest thing that had ever happened as, you know, in the history of orchestras. And that sense of enthusiasm and discovery and freshness is um, is difficult to preserve. The schedule that the New York Philharmonic maintains is just ridiculous. Do you recommend they do less? 
Absolutely. Less music, uh, more time, more time off. It's kind of like being on a hamster wheel um, that just keeps keeps going on and on. And I've said this many times, and I really believe it. New York is the toughest music market in the world and has a constant parade of the greatest orchestras coming through and the next to greatest orchestras coming through, all bringing their A game. People don't play in New York on tour unless they've prepared as well as they possibly can. They play in their programs. They try them in different venues. Finally, they're ready for the big time in New York. They play in New York, and they and they try to knock it out of the park. The New York Philharmonic plays every week in New York. Right. Normal, four-rehearsal schedule, new program. Next week, four rehearsals, new program. I guarantee you, if we gave the New York Philharmonic schedule book to any other orchestra in the world and said, okay, you play this, People's perceptions of the relative merits of orchestras would would shift. I mean, if you can achieve something incredibly artistic after a lot of hard, hard work, great, more power to you. But the fact is that the New York Philharmonic is playing under a much more challenging circumstance. Well, why, why is the Philharmonic so extensive? Why? Well, there are a lot of challenges uh, that are just inherent in the in the situation that surrounds the uh, the New York Philharmonic. There, there. Um, you know, their demands to generate revenue, uh, to always have ticket sales, and their fixed costs that are are being paid all the time, whether or not the orchestra plays. For this space. For this space and for the musicians themselves. And, and, and um, it's, I guess, efficiency. You know, I'm not in the business office, uh, you know, thankfully for, you know, everyone involved. But um, but the fact is that people look at the schedule and say, oh, look at this law. We could do another concert here. So, you know, let's see, maybe this is a place we could do a, a benefit concert. Or maybe if we have, we have one rehearsal and one concert, what could we do with one rehearsal and one concert? And the idea is to, you know, to use the orchestra to the extent possible uh, allowed by the contract. And when that kind of thinking starts to to forget takeover, but even creep in um, the artistic health of the orchestra and the sort of call it aesthetic integrity of the musicians is not the first, these are not the first things that are being considered. The number of notes that they played, we did Das Rheingold complete, I mean, that's just like ridiculous. It's two and a half hours of incredibly hard music. And then we did Mahler's Seventh Symphony, which yeah. is like unbelievably difficult. And then we just jumped immediately into... Um, into uh, the Parks program, which is also hard. Dvorak New World and Symphonic Dances from West Side Story. Sounds easy when this orchestra plays it. It's one of the hardest pieces to play. Gershwin and American in Paris. And we also had a concert up at St. John the Divine for Memorial Day, Mahler Fourth Symphony thrown in. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... it's, it's uh, work. Yeah, Fine it's work. hard. Now, um, obviously, um, everybody knows your story. Uh, first native New Yorker to lead the orchestra and... Your uh, family and your mom and dad being in the orchestra, you being the, the little kid with the handing out everybody's passports. Go ahead. If you no, want no, to no. It's just I have, I, have, I have just fond memories when I when I think back. I, I knew everybody in the orchestra. I knew everybody's name, and uh, I remember sitting uh, on the plane. Do you remember Mattel Electronics Football? <laughs> <laughs> that was like the first video game, and it was like, like these little red blips that didn't even move, but the next one would light up as the ball went and stuff. It was um, um, certainly by today's standards unbelievably rudimentary, but I loved that game. And so did Roland Koloff. He was the principal timpanist. So he, we would play this game together, and then later on it became the Rubik's Cube, and yeah. and uh, you know I would hang out with, with the orchestra, and uh, it's amazing to think that it's come to this. You started playing an instrument when you were how old? Um... I always had a violin um, from the time I was really, and you really little. request or other people well, promoted? Well, you know, we have a kind of um, violin happy family. Um, my parents were both are both violinists, and my father's father was a violinist, and and his brother is a horn player, but he also studied the violin, and his sister is a pianist, but she also studied the violin, and my sister is a violinist. It's a bit. It's, <laughs> Let's not even get into it. It's right. uh, you know, it's it's it is what it is. But and you wanted it. I, I did not want it. Right. I mean, kids don't just take up an instrument for the most part when they're really little, unless their parents try Emotion. to try to set up uh, something. But it, it's it's um, it, I think it cuts both ways. It's certainly helpful, and I think it served me very well to to have come from a musical family and to have been, been around the world that I actually inhabit 
full time now, but that was that was what I knew growing up. But um, if you are self motivated and have to do it on your own, that also can lead to a certain kind of strength. When did you understand that you were good? That you could really, really play? How old were you when someone said to you, "You're really good"? Uh, you know, I I went to Juilliard pre college. Certainly, there were more dazzling violinists around, so I never thought I was one of the best. But I could play, and and I I knew that, you know, if I wanted to, I could become a professional violinist. That was something that in I, some yeah, I knew I was good enough to earn a living. And it, the the one difference I've noticed more than anything with between um, people who c- come from musical families and people who come from families in which nobody's a musician is many of those people are told by the, their parents, oh, it's a, it's a risky profession. You know, you should go into something that's more secure, more, where, you know, income is more guaranteed. You know, don't, you know, they imagine the life of a bohemian musician who's, you know, scraping to get by just from day to day. I never once doubted that I could make a living, at least to, to get by as a musician, because I saw what my parents did, and it just didn't occur to me that music wasn't a viable profession, if you see what I mean. You went to Fieldston. Well, I went to Fieldston, but Juilliard Pre-College was right. a Saturday so, so, right. weekend Separate program. program. Yeah. Um, so when you leave Fieldston, where do you go? I went to Harvard. I, I, um, for music? Uh, not, no, not really. I was going to find out for what. <laughs> uh, I just went for Harvard. I, I, you right. know, I, I wanted to go, and... Uh, Thought it would be an exciting place to be, and it, and it was because there, there are a lot of very passionate people who are, you know, whatever they're doing, they're doing it because they're really interested in it. And you, the conversations you would hear at the um, in the dining room were about anything, you know, ranging. What from, did you study? Well, I st- I was I finally graduated as a music concentrator, but that was more convenience than than the fact that it was really what I wanted to study at Harvard. I, I did get it good education in music theory and composition and history and things like that. Um, it's almost not at all performance at Harvard. Um, you know, people would joke with certain degree of, of accuracy that at, at Harvard music was meant to be um, uh, seen and not heard. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I was also studying violin and we organized many concerts, but I, I was, what I really was interested in was English and poetry. And I took as many courses in in, in those subjects as I, as I could. Finally, since I was just because of the distribution and because I was a pretty lazy student, actually, it just made more sense to graduate as a, as a music concentrator. And after that, you went to Curtis. Exactly. Right. And all this time, you're still performing. You're still playing the violin. And you have a sense at some point that you, you said that you, although you knew you could make a living at it and get a seat at some ensemble around the world, that you knew you weren't the greatest. When does conducting enter the conversation? My dad is a good conductor, and um, you shouldn't get the idea that he was this kind of fierce, you know, tiger dad, you know, compelling me to to pursue conducting, because it wasn't like that at all. But he did show me certain basics of conducting technique, the patterns of moving your arms for beating four and in three, and how to start Beethoven Fifth Symphony, which is a challenging start, because it starts with a rest. There's the first impulses, a silence, you know, but there's a impulse. That's a tricky thing to conduct, actually, even though it's, you know, the iconic moment in in music. Um, So I had some sense of what conducting was about. And when I was in pre-college, because I was the concertmaster in my senior year, um, there were rehearsals that uh, the conductor asked me to take over. So I did string sectionals conducting the orchestra. It was kind of lucky the way I first actually stood in the time I first stood in front of an orchestra. There was a guest conductor for one of the programs that the pre-college orchestra did, and it was conducted by a guy by the name of Ronald Bronstein. And um, because of scheduling issues or for whatever reason, the next rehearsal after his concert, in other words, the first rehearsal of the next cycle for the next for the next program was going to be conducted by our regular conductor, Roger Nirenberg. Um, but he couldn't get back for that one rehearsal. So Ronald, um, instead of starting to rehearse Roger's program, decided to give some of the students in the orchestra the chance to conduct. And it happened that my sister was walking down Broadway and ran into him, and he told her what he was planning to do. She was also in the orchestra. And um, she said, oh, I bet my brother would be interested in that. Just... So this is your Bernstein Carnegie Hall moment. Well, in a way, on an incredibly small scale. <laughs> small scale. <laughs> and uh, you know, I gave him a call, 
And he said, yeah, okay, you're lucky. There's one more slot. You can prepare the first movement of Dvorak's Sixth Symphony. And I worked with my dad for two or three days. And I had my moment in front of the orchestra. And it was completely new and completely terrifying. And after that, you know, sometimes these first moments with, an, with a new experience are so crucial. And they really determine the direction that you end up going. It could either go you know, one direction or if it doesn't, if the experience is negative or difficult or scary in the wrong way, you end up completely giving up. But he said something to me after, and I don't know if, I'm sure it was hyperbole or just kind of, he was throwing words around. He said, you know, if I had my way, I'd kick out the entire class at Juilliard and I'd put you in the conducting class there. He said, you have talent. I was like, wow. So when I went to Harvard then, I had had this experience of, of conducting, and almost right away when I got there, I auditioned to be assistant conductor of the Harvard Radcliffe Orchestra, which I got. Uh, I think I was lucky. It was unusual for a freshman to, to get a position like that. But because of that, I actually got to conduct the orchestra in performance and do rehearsals and things. And using the videotape from one of those performances, I applied to Tanglewood for the summer conducting program at Tanglewood with Seiji Ozawa and Gustav Meyer. And um, I got in, and, and uh, so I was able to start studying there. The big crossroads for me came when I was getting ready to graduate from college, and I was planning to go to a conservatory, and I had to really decide, will I go as a violinist or as a conductor? Um, and I decided to apply as a conductor because I figured sort of what I already had thought. I, well, you know, I'm a decent violinist. I could... I could make a living as a violinist, uh, even if I don't go study at a conservatory now. Um, let's just see how, how the conducting thing goes. So I ended up getting into um, Curtis, and I went to Curtis for three years, and then I continued with the same teacher, Otto Wernermüller, at Juilliard. I got my master's degree. Um, so Curtis and then Juilliard after that. Yeah, yeah. I can't <laughs> complain about my education. Yeah, you know, you any failings to that I have. Leave no academic yeah. stone unturned here. Yeah, no, I was conducting during those two periods as well. Yeah, Curtis and, and Juilliard. Although I did study violin, it was it was wonderful. I got to. But work. you steer sharply in the direction of conducting at, at both was, Curtis and Juilliard. I was a conducting conducting student, but while I was at Curtis, I studied violin with Yasha Brodsky, one of the great violin teachers who was there at the time, and I also. Um, auditioned um, to be on the Philadelphia Orchestra substitute musician list. And just because of the way things were the, those years, there were a lot of openings. Uh, I think a couple of people were on sick leave. There were people out on you know, maternity leave or whatever. And I played basically full-time in the Philadelphia Orchestra while I was studying at Curtis as a violinist. You know, for me, as a, a, a non-pro, if you will, but a devoted fan of that music, someone will play the fourth movement of the Mahler Ninth almost three minutes longer than someone. I mean, some people just squeeze the hell out of the adagios and so forth. In my mind, what a conductor does, only I only base it on that, on that information and those numbers on those uh, downloads, that you decide the pace that it's played. Is that correct? You, you play it your way. I think that... Tempo is the single most important attribute or characteristic of an inter interpretation. Early on, there was no separate profession of conductor. Right. Very often, the composer would lead the performance, or maybe the first violinist, the concertmaster, would guide things along. But essentially, if a pulse was kept, people could play along. Jean-Baptiste Lully the French composer actually famously killed himself, supposedly, so the story goes, because what they did is not wave a stick in the air, but actually he beat, a, beat his staff on the floor. And apparently he missed and impaled his foot with the staff, and he contracted Died gangrene. Yeah, and he ended up dying. Yeah. So it's a hazardous profession <clears throat> even today, but back then I guess it could have been worse. But um, as music got more complicated, it became more useful and maybe even necessary for there to be an outside person who was not playing an instrument. Who could listen. Who could listen and, and guide everybody. And the idea of a modern conductor with that kind of mythical status, uh, this kind of mystical um, presence who would shape the music and come up with an interpretation, um, you know, when it was the composer himself, the idea was to present the piece. But then when, when you know, Mendelssohn started performing the music of Bach and, and when Liszt started doing other composers' music, the idea was to come up with a personal take and, and uh, it became a thing. 
Um, and now, obviously, with some very complicated music, tricky meters and stuff, the idea of you know just giving people an indication of where the what where is the, the beat where's the tempo in right of spring. Yeah, you know? for example, I mean right. that's that would be really really hard for an orchestra to do, if not impossible, Alone. without a conductor. And it becomes an aesthetic, even philosophical question: what an interpretation is. Um, I I try to find the right tempo at every moment. Right tempo. What is the right tempo? You're, you know, you're pointing out that there are many different ways you can do it, but something. It's different for different people. It's different for for different situations. But it's you have a different. sense there's a better way to play it. Well, you have to find the tempo that's absolutely right for you. That is completely organic for your relationship with the piece, and that's what I do when I study. I'm trying to digest the music to the point where, if I open the score randomly to any page, I get an immediate and visceral kind of reaction to the notes I see on the page, and I have the sense that this is how they have to go. And then you have to sell it to them? And then, well, what happens is, it's interesting, when you know a piece that well, as you're conducting it, you don't have to consciously do anything. It comes out that way. The gesture takes care you? of itself. Yeah, and that's what you were or, re- or in rehearsal, do they ever say to you, "We, would, I would like to play it another way? They don't do that. Sure, they do that, sure. absolutely, especially if there's a solo. And, and that's what makes it fun, because the chemistry and the kind of give and take of, uh, you know, it's like a, it's like a vessel with, with two, two chambers, and the kind of the fluid can kind of shift back and forth. And the idea is sometimes you give, you give over a little bit of the, the, the lead to the soloist who's playing a solo, and you react to it. But it's all together, and that soloist will feel differently about the solo, even if they have their own interpretation, if you will, based on your presence and your physicality. And so it's, it, if you see you know, a great jazz combo playing, like we just had Winton the other day, and it was so interesting to watch them play together because you can tell that even though they're improvising, they're completely affecting each other. And when one person does something, they react to it and they emphasize a certain impulse or you know, click in the beat, and then that in turn inspires the one who made the first move and it's this constant feedback loop that also happens with music that's written down i've done the same piece with two different orchestras in consecutive weeks and although my interpretation hasn't dramatically changed the way the piece ends up coming out is very different or is everybody doing the exact same thing but in their own way some of them seem to be ahead of the beat and some of them seem to be on the beat yeah, that's a very that's a very interesting observation because it's it's absolutely true. With some conductors, orchestras will tend to make a sound that's closer to where it seems as if the it's called the ictus of their beat, the sort of the click where the beat actually happens. There's there's either greater or lesser delay from that. And it depends on the the quality of the gesture. And it's very hard to describe why that works and how that works. It's also according to the orchestra. Certain orchestras play closer to the beat than 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 others. Like the Cleveland Orchestra, for example, tends to play closer to the visual, you know, where the beat looks as if it is, than the New York Philharmonic. A lot of European orchestras, German orchestras, just play even more behind the beat. And this is where it gets interesting, because it's about tempo, it's about rhythm. It's also about sound quality. If you imagine a sound that goes, gak, that's like right there. There's no delay. Yeah. Or if it's, mm. that, you know, that there's a kind of delay it. and it can't, it can't possibly start at a, such a determinate time. Um, I remember when I first played in the Philadelphia Orchestra, I was early. I came in, I, my, I made a sound before the other musicians because there is more delay there. So I would see Ricardo Muti give a gesture and, and he would go boom and I would go boom right there and everyone else would wait and the sound would, would, would come out later. And uh, after a while, I didn't have to make that, ca- that calculation, that adjustment. And it's different from the New York Philharmonic. That's an institutional. Yeah, it's not a conscious thing. It's not, that, it's not like they talk about it, but it's the culture of sound. It's the tradition of, of the way they, they collectively create rhythm and sound. Uh, I remember seeing Herbert von Karajan conduct the Vienna Philharmonic, and it was I've never seen anything like this. How far ahead of the sound his beat was, it looked like he was almost in the next measure. They were playing. They were playing Schubert Unfinished Symphony. He was beating along, and I swear I couldn't see any connection between there were what two he was doing. Time zones. Yeah, he was like you know he was already on the plane, and they were still getting to the airport or something. It was so bizarre, but they played so beautifully. So an orchestra that has a kind of more precise way of making sound 
will tend not to play so far behind the beat. Generally speaking, orchestras in France, which are very precise in the way they approach rhythm and maybe not quite as as voluptuous in the sound quality that they make as, say, for example, a German orchestra, they tend to play closer to the beat. And then when I first conducted the Philadelphia Orchestra, the first beats I conducted with the Philadelphia Orchestra, the sound came so much later than I expected, I almost fell off the stage because it was such a shock. I gave a beat and they didn't play. And then what seemed like an eternity later, the sound came back to me perfectly together. It was really bizarre. When you do this kind of work, you have to have this keen, almost mathematical aptitude to just to fit all these scrabble tiles in your skull every day of all these notes. And, and, and when you talk about entrances, you know, I think to myself, what if there's more than one entrance or what if the entrances all fall on top of each other? Who, who, who gets picked? You know, they make their entrances whether you give them a right, dedicated cue or not, course, or not course. because, you know, they know where they are and they're counting. So when you beat an entrance for, it's for multiple, they know it's for all of them. It's, not, it. it's not to make sure that they play. It's to help them enter in the way that you want them to run with the spirit and with the character that you want. They don't, you don't need to look at them to play. And there's no way you don't always even, even certain entrances from one concert to the next, you'll either give, you'll give them a look or not. Um, It's very comforting if a player is counting a lot of rests to get your eye a couple of measures before and then confirmation that it's time for them to play at, at 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 the correct moment. Outgoing New York Philharmonic conductor, Alan Gilbert. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. One of the living composers whose work Gilbert brought to New York audiences is Esapekka Salonen. The concert this spring, where Gilbert conducted Salonen's L.A. variations, is just one example of his difficult balancing act. Salonen is a great conductor in his own right, too, currently at the Philharmonia Orchestra in London. But on Here's the Thing, he told me he is frustrated that there's so much more attention paid to conductors than to composers. I had a really kind of illuminating experience in L.A. some years ago. I was, I was at Starbucks, actually, queuing for my coffee. And there was a guy in front of me who asked whether I was so-and-so, and I said, yes, I, I am. And he said he was also a composer. And he told me that he had written a, a couple of songs for Madonna and, you know, these huge names. And his name doesn't appear anywhere. And I thought, so it's not only a classical music right. problem. Hear more stories from my talk with Essa Pekka Salonen at heresthething.org. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. A few years ago, I collaborated with Alan Gilbert on a program where the Philharmonic performed famous film scores live to picture. It was exhilarating for me, but I worried it would feel like just another concert for Gilbert. I needn't have. I had never done that, and that was a, that was so great. We were terrified to pitch that to you. By the way, we I thought don't know you why, because no, no, I totally, sure you'd like. Well, to do I, that. I, I, I was, I'm happy with the ones I chose to do. I mean, certainly the uh, 2001 and the right. Manhattan. I mean, those, they're such great films. First of all, right. and the way music is used is so integral to the whole artistic product. 2001 was great. It was. I mean, and it was one of the hardest things that I've ever done, uh, because essentially, you have to coordinate because Kubrick was such a genius. I mean, it was no accident when certain moments in the film visually happened in relation to the music. You know, when the spaceship shows up, you know, boom, something has to happen there. And you, if you're not, right. you know, if you don't hit that, that mark, mark exactly right, you, you know, you're taking away from the, from the impact and the value of the film. So I really worked very hard. And the, whoever had prepared the score, maybe it worked for them, but they were, there were time marks all through the score, but they weren't, Right, actually. So I literally spent hours going through and figuring out how how to mark my score. And I tried to the best of my ability. I mean, I'm no professional in the world of cinema, but I tried to really identify which moments were crucial and which moments there was some play. Because, you know, if if um you know if you have one moment where say a you know horn starts to play and that's where you know the sun shows up or whatever and the uh in 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 the movie okay you know you have to hit that but then there may be you know 20 seconds in which it's not so crucial and that made it possible to figure out how to pace those say 20 seconds in order to end up at the right place uh, without it feeling too metronomic. It's difficult. You want it to sound natural, and you want it to sound as if it's your own interpretation. Um, but it also has to fit with the film. And what I had to practice during the rehearsals was how to either make up time or give time back. Because um, you know sometimes you're ahead. You know There are time marks, and you say, okay, I'm a little bit ahead. And the ones where it doesn't matter, then you know you have to slow it down. You can't just suddenly slow it down because then it'll sound like a discontinuity in the music. You have to know, okay, if I slow down this much, then I'll, then by the time, you know, five measures later, then we'll be able to hit, hit the next mark. And that sort of interaction is completely different from what we do usually. Because, you know, if something slows down a little bit in the concert, that's okay. That's what happens. And you don't have to try to make it up. You, you know, you're not trying to end the piece in the exact same amount of time that you did it the night before. If it's a little slower the next night, right. no big deal. Yeah. But that doesn't work with the movie. You can't end two minutes later than the movie. <laughs> right, right. I hit four of the big five orchestras in my development. I was really, really lucky to to see how these all wonderful orchestras worked so differently from each other. And then your first major appointment is in Sweden. Was in Sweden. I started working as a guest conductor um, and... Uh, Stockholm Royal Stockholm Philharmonic was looking for a chief conductor, and I didn't even know it at the time. And um, I conducted the orchestra, and they invited me back for a essentially a tryout week because uh, I hadn't worked with. There were a lot of regular musicians who didn't play my concert. It was a summer concert, so people were on leave, and so they brought me back uh, as soon as possible, which was early in the next season. And I did a huge program. We did a uh, Don Juan of Strauss and. Uh, Mozart Oboe Concerto and the Rite of Spring, in fact. And uh, I guess that went well enough that they asked me to be their chief conductor. So I took on a position there, and I was there for eight years. And, uh, yeah, then landed in New York. Who contacts who and says to you, we'd like to talk to you? Um, there were conversations kind of um, before I was invited to be music director about a completely different setup. 
that was being imagined involving uh, another conductor who would have been the music director and and what what I would have been as some kind of principal conductor or some other lesser title but the idea was that there would be two of us and um, and I, I would have um, conducted a lot of weeks. Was that other conductor that they talked about somebody you liked and admired and you wouldn't Absolutely. mind? Absolutely. No, we, 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 and it was, it was a very exciting opportunity for me because I wasn't angling to become music director of the New York Philharmonic. And then what happened? Um, well, that fell apart. Because they couldn't afford that person. No. <laughs> Just, <laughs> let's leave it at, it fell apart. <laughs> um, and so then, you know, I guess they went back to the drawing board and sometime later they, uh, you know, they called Zarin Mehta called me up. And who made that? Was it Zarin who drove that? Who drove that? You know, I don't know the internal workings. They, you don't? No one bothered to tell you? Well, I mean— Did you want to know? Essentially, the way it works is that a lot of people get together, and there's a search committee that's made up of musicians and board members and administrators and sometimes some outside people. Um, I don't actually know exactly who was on the search committee that ended up choosing me, but obviously there was a— critical mass of consensus. That, sure, that, have that to was be, but Zarin was your champion. I, yeah, 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 apparently, which I will always always appreciate, and I'll never forget the, um, the phone call, and this is an absolutely true story. I was traveling in Japan with my family, and I had, at the time, two young children. Um, it was eight years ago, so Estra was three, I think, or it was nine years ago, so he was even two, and Noemi was three, or so, something like that, and they had finally fallen asleep. We had had a torturous night you know how it is with jet lag sure. just you know for for us but for little kids it's impossible and and they'd finally fallen asleep and i got a call from Zarin meta just after they had fallen asleep and he said well alan i'd you know like to invite you to be our next music director and i said that's great Zarin, but my kids just fell asleep i can't talk to you now <laughs> and he thought it was he thought it was out of my mind but oh my, my, my wife and i were so happy that they had fallen asleep and, and so i just you know i hung up and i said guess what? They just asked me to be music director and you know, we were like trying to contain ourselves. But um, yeah, then I called him back and we had a... I want to put proper. that scene in a movie where a guy's like, more than being the music director of the Philharmonic, I want my kids to go to sleep. Yeah, Click. totally. We, will, we all know the madness of that moment. Of yeah, that moment. Yeah. So how did you feel? You know, I had a sense that it was it was in the air, but I absolutely didn't expect it. And you can't, you can hope for something like that, but you, you know, it's ridiculous to expect it. Um, I was thrilled because... Obviously, it's a great orchestra, and it's my hometown orchestra. Sure. And to be able to work with them on a regular basis. It was basis, your home as yeah. well, because both yeah. your parents are here. So when you arrive and you begin, whether you had any preconceptions or not, what reality sinks in once you have the job? You get the job and you come in, then what? I have to say I was pretty prepared um, because of my very close connection and knowledge of the orchestra over the years. And I... Pretty well. I mean, I'm not just patting myself on the back about this, but I, I called it pretty well what the traje trajectory of my time at the Philharmonic would would be. Uh, I predicted to, to Kaisa eight years when, when we started, and it's turned out to be exactly eight years. Um, and I knew that there would be ups and downs and, and some, some more challenging periods. Um, what was... What was nice and, and surprising in a good way was that some of the kind of call it out-of-the-box initiatives that I started were really accepted by the orchestra and by the community around the orchestra. Things like the contact series and the the production of Grand Macabre Grand that we Macabre. did in my first season. I mean, that was completely new. It was, it was like nothing the orchestra had, had done or tried, Those were your tried before. And that was really important for me to have a success with those things early on because that gave me, that bought me time, that gave me cred, um, and it made it possible to continue to try to do other things. Now, for people who don't understand this completely, what the orchestra plays, there's a committee that decides that, or you decide, or both? At the end of the day, you could sort of simplify the, uh, the equation and say that I decide. You decide. Theoretically, as music director, I have the power to decide everything. Um, I don't think that would be a good way to go about it for a lot of reasons. It's too difficult. It's too, it take, would take too much time. Uh, it's too complicated because so many pieces have to fall into place. If you have guest and artists involved, and you almost always do, they have to be engaged. The contract has to be written. The schedule has to be organized. Guest and factor in what they want to play. 
Absolutely. Right. Guest conductors. You so know, when I, Yo-Yo or somebody like that comes here, you don't say to them, you're going to play this. They tell you what they'd like to play. Well, it, it's not that or simple. Both. I mean, it's a conversation with someone right. like Yo-Yo, who's a good friend of mine. We'll talk about it. And, and I'll say, hey, would you think about you know playing this piece? And he'll say either yes, for sure, I'd love to do that, or mm, I'm not so interested in doing that. You know, Would you consider this? Or It's a give and take. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the day, you want people to be happy about what they're doing here. Different music directors function in different ways, though. I've guest conducted at certain orchestras where the music director will say, hey, do whatever you want. And so I'll suggest a program, and if it works with their season, and if it's a piece that they haven't played too recently, they'll accept it. Other music directors will say, no guest conductor can do Brahms. I'm the only conductor who will do Brahms with the orchestra, for example. Or all the Mahler symphonies are just saved for me. And that's not... It's not you unusual. Have you, felt, have you felt that way? I've never operated that way. Never. I think it's good for for the orchestra to experience music, um, you know, similar music but, with different points of view. But just as I just as I don't favor all classical repertoire equally, I'm assuming you don't either. And is there a point when you're scripting and you're writing the program for the year uh, that you sit there and say, "Man, I'm not really feel, feel that great about this, but it's something we should play." Absolutely. You're in the fortunate position as music director that you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. But but the way I've tried to program is to combine things in meaningful ways, to create fresh contexts for pieces to shine with the greatest possible resonance. And I, I happen to believe that um, showing connections, for example, between Beethoven and music that was you know written centuries later can be illuminating. Another thing that I noticed, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a concert goer is that there's times that the maestro yourself included, obviously is on the podium with no sheet music. And then do do you conduct with no score? Cause you just know it so well. Is that what the difference? Yeah. I mean, uh, there's, there's a lot of music that I can do without the score. And I, in a way I would have to say, I prefer to do music without the score. Um, but I don't, feel compelled to do music without the score. There's there are some conductors who, maybe just because they can, uh, or maybe because they think it's important, um, insist on doing everything without the, without the score. It shouldn't matter. Just because you have the score there doesn't mean that you don't have to know it as well. But you have to know it in a different way if you're going to conduct without the score. So you have to make sure you're not going to make mistakes and you really remember what's, what's going on. Um, I'm lucky I'm able to learn pieces easily and, and conduct without the score. But I do so much music, sometimes it's just more comfortable to have the music there. No, I'll be there and I'll watch this music performed by whoever is conducting, whoever the ensemble is. And I mean, it's just sometimes it crushes me, it just overwhelms me. Does that happen to you? Do you ever perform music? And not that you have that kind of um, uh, plainly visible reaction, but just sometimes does it just overwhelm you? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there are times when I... I I really, I mean, I'm in the middle of um, conducting Dvorak New World Symphony, which we've all done how many gazillions of times. (laughs) And it's just such a fantastic piece. It's just so exciting and so natural and heartfelt and beautiful and and so well-written for the orchestra. I was thinking, damn, this is unbelievable that we get to do this. did the symphonic dances from West Side Story by Bernstein. One of the greatest compositions of the 20th century. Yeah. You know, And then in American Paris, as I said, these are three yeah. pieces that were pre- good ones. <laughs> premiered by the New York Philharmonic. Wow, I didn't know that. How cool is that? I yeah. mean, how, what orchestra can say that? I, it's just, you know, three iconic works, all 
brought to life by the New York Philharmonic. And here I am conducting the New York Philharmonic in those very three pieces. Now, music directors, most nights of the year, you're out working. It's very difficult. And mm-hmm. this, this this last stretch leading up to you know these last concerts that I'm doing in New York City have been crazy. There have been tributes, and I've been out just about every single night. And, you know, my kids understand what's going on, but, you know, they say very reasonably, they say, you know, when are you not going to be going out? You know, are you going out again? And it's not only the nights, it's just everything else. There's so many things that go along with the responsibilities of of being music director, meetings, planning things, and, and just like unlikely stuff, you know, Decide, you know, writing a letter to this person or 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 thanking this donor. I mean, all really worthwhile things that obviously have to be done. Um, but with American orchestras, the music director, frankly, has so much power that there are certain things that won't happen unless I weigh in on them. So it really gums up the works if I don't if I don't act on things. So there's a kind of constant drip of just little things that have to be taken care of. And I'm really not going to miss that. Um, and then, I'll, but I'll be around. I'm conducting the Juilliard Orchestra in a concert in sometime maybe January, and and I'll be here just about every month, uh, teaching at Juilliard for a few days at a time. And uh, I mean, I'm a New, York, it on. New Yorker at heart, and sure. so you know, I actually am not you know 100 percent um, happy about uh, about the move. Nor is Kaisa. Kaisa has become more a New Yorker than I think I am. Actually, she's she's really taken to the city and loves it, and I think she'll miss it maybe even more than she realizes. People have written some very very kind things about you and your evolution in this job. Those are the good critics you're talking. about. Yeah, they're the smart ones. Well, the, the brilliant critics. Yeah, the only ones worth worth, worth uh, dealing with. And and they and all of them use the same kind of hot buttons, grand macabre, and things you tried that they thought were very admiring of, and your devotion to new music. And they said some very very kind things about you. And when you leave here, what's your feeling? Like if you had a, just in a, in, a, in a paragraph, you look back on it, and it was what to you? I I think the orchestra is playing better than ever. Right. I think they sound incredible. I agree. I think I can take some credit for that. I agree. And there's a kind of kind of attitude about the shared experience that the musicians have of really cooperating and supporting each other and helping each other to sound as good as possible, a spirit of collegiality and 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 mutual support that is fresh. I didn't I don't think it was as strong before. Um, and the willingness of the musicians to take risks and go outside of the usual box of what is asked of musicians has been incredible and really gratifying. I mean, the, the things that we've been doing that they do without batting an eye now would have been unthinkable. And not, not that what was before was was bad or not you know or anemic in any way. You left the institution in better shape artistically than when you found it. Means a lot to hear you say that, Alec. I think what all arts organizations, orchestras for sure, but not just orchestras, need to do is to to really think hard about what their purpose is and what we're trying to accomplish and what we stand for. And if you really believe strongly enough, then then you should find the courage to to make it happen and take whatever risks are necessary because it it is it is about art and it is about the human condition and these are very lofty things to say but ultimately that's why we do it Alan Gilbert, the New York Philharmonic's groundbreaking former music director. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.